0: perfect example was the recent um, vote in the UN on the uh, Hong Kong security law that was brought in, um, which saw 53 countries uh, vote in support of China, as and uh, I believe about 27 opposed. Of those 53, um, very few of them will be rated as free or democratic countries um, and uh, the vast majority of them were recipients of Belt and Road Initiative funding and projects.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Intelligence Fusion's podcast. And this week we're talking about how China's extended its influence throughout the Asian continent. I'm Max Taylor and I'm the Senior Regional Analyst at Intelligence Fusion and today I'm joined by Matt Pratton who who's helped who's worked closely with me in the East Asia region particularly with the South China Sea.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Cheers, Max. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, I'm, well, I'm one of a, a few analysts that uh, we've been keeping a close eye on 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 matters. There, we uh, go to great lengths to really drill down, uh, you know, uh, you know incidents at the at the, at the lowest level po- possible to get a bigger uh, to get the best idea clearest idea possible of what's going on in the whole area. So we uh, we look at uh, you know where planes have you know where any info we can find on where planes have been flying, where ships have been sailing nearly everything we get to get to is at the lowest level possible.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Matt. And I'm also joined by Alex Smith, who's a new starter at Intelligence Fusion. And Alex has spent some time living in Hong Kong, I believe. Yeah, um, I used to live and work in Hong
0: Kong. um, And I've had a long-term interest in China um, and sort of east asia and and southeast asia more generally
1: i think it's safe to say you've got quite extensive experience in the asia pacific region as an analyst as well yes um i've I've spent my career covering the
0: whole sort of pakistan to australia region
1: great stuff so, as I said, this week we're talking about the uh, growing influence of China in the uh, Asia region and the way, how they've done this. And this is a massive subject, as we've, we've already mentioned in the past. This is huge. So we've tried to break this down into two, two distinct categories. And the first we're going to focus on is, uh, is a more military side of things and the way that they've extended using military and hard power. And we're also going to look at the economic side of uh, China's growing influence through initiatives such as the Belt and Road Initiative and more specifically CPEC uh, or the Chinese Pakistan Economic Corridor. So, Matt, would you like to get us started talking about the South China Sea and the the military side of this question?
2: Uh, Where to begin? Um, I think I could probably sum up the South China Sea's significance as in terms of maritime trade. And uh, resources, you could probably call it decisive terrain. I mean, that's uh, by comparison to, say, the Pacific Ocean, you know, that small body of water, the, uh, you know, the South China Sea, it's, you know, you've got uh, quite a number of nations that depend on that, on that, uh, on that area for access to and from, uh, you know, uh, to and from other nations around the world. I mean, just to you know, rattle off for of probably a, a few nations off the top of my head that would depend on access through, uh, to and from that area. I mean, you've got the Chinese themselves, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia. Singapore, uh, Japan, South Korea, uh, Thailand, and, and Vietnam, and then of course, you know, with surrounding nations around the world, that particular area as well is vital for them to uh, yeah, to access those particular markets for for trade. And in terms of resources in the area, well, the South China Sea is uh, regarded as having a considerable amount of fishing stock uh, of you know of, of uh, resources for fishing, which in uh, in Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, and East Asia, uh, uh, fishing is uh, quite a considerably large uh, large consumer market. So. Uh, that pati- that particular body of water having you know being able to access and have a uh, freedom of movement in that area can provide quite a lot of um, security in terms of supply into uh, in terms of supply for fishing stocks which of course will enable uh, fishing markets around those around those areas to uh, keep operating and finally there's reportedly quite a lot of energy resources in terms of oil and gas. So controlling that bit of area in terms of you know uh, the energy resources available can help provide anyone who uh, you know of course every nation around the world needs to guarantee its energy supplies. So control, you know, having a considerable amount of control in that area can uh, you know for any uh, na- uh, nation in the immediate region, well that can provide quite a lot of security for energy.
0: And let's not forget that um, from a purely military perspective as well, the South China Sea really does add several hundred miles of effective defence in depth and allows, mm. you know, it gives, it, it gives China the ability to push its its homeland defence far beyond its coastline, which is... Another microphone factor.
1: Yeah, I think it's a maybe less a publicized point that as well. Actually, and also from China's perspective, it is of some concern from a security perspective to have these US uh, military assets as well as US allied military assets in the region. So, from a Chinese perspective as well, it's uh, it's, it's easy to see sort of why they respond as they do to these uh, these troop movements and drills that we see in the region.
2: Yeah, it's. I mean, for just about not just uh, not just the Chinese, for you know that you know, the South China Sea, uh, like like you guys mentioned, like you know with, with regards to de- uh, defense in depth, yeah, it would provide a really effective. You know, having you know freedom of freedom of movement, and freedom of action in that area can essentially provide, in military terms, a, a you know a very a very a very effective buffer for well, not just the Chinese, but for anyone in the area. So, so uh, Vietnam, for example, having freedom of action and freedom of movement uh, of the in, in the South China Sea is going to be one very effective way to make sure that you know, should anyone uh, come try try to come into Vietnam, uh, you know, with a, with a hostile intent, uh, they've got an effective buffer to provide early uh, early warning, and the same would go for Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, and all the other neighbors and uh, neighbors in the area. So. There's a lot of, there's quite a number of uh, quite a number of countries, uh, both in the immediate region and in the wider, well, in fact, uh, around the world, that would uh, rely on being able to have freedom of movement and freedom of action in the area.
1: So you hear I think when people look at the South China Sea as well, they often see it in the context of USA versus China as a confrontation between those two, but yeah, i think it's quite as right. it 's crazy to forget that there's other countries in the area in the region as well how How have you guys seen um, other countries in the region reacting? Have they largely bandwagon with China or have they in cases tried to oppose Chinese influence?
2: It depends. I mean, a lot, a
1: lot of. I
2: mean, well, for for those who are sort of, you know, sort of taking a sort of a pro-China stance, probably the most striking example of that would be the Philippines. In fact, yeah. they, uh, from essentially <coughs> uh, President Rodrigo Duterte, is a uh, pretty much, um, you know, uh, allowing the Chinese into into the into the Philippines' exclusive economic zones. Uh, uh, frankly, which is. Uh, you, know, very, you know, very good news for China, but of course for everyone else around the region, that's uh, you know quite concerning. Uh, Taiwan depends on you know being able to you know have a lot of freedom of movement because, well, uh, the very since the very uh, start of communist China, uh, as soon as uh, you know mainland China was taken over by the communist party, uh, Taiwan uh, suddenly realised that uh, they now have a very exa- as, it, as existential threat uh, to their uh, to their security so uh, as far as other nations go, Vietnam now while a communist country are actually quite concerned about Chinese actions uh, in the South China Sea because uh, you know with regards to the fishing stocks uh, that the that, that, that body of water provides the you know Chinese coast Guards have on a number of occasions this year actually rammed Vietnamese fishing vessels. And so, of course, you know, having that kind of that kind of threat to simply commercial fishing is uh, quite is quite a concern for any nation. So, while you know, you'd sort of in some cases you'd sort of expect uh, Vietnam to sort of be along, uh, you know, go along with China, given the uh, both countries are uh, communist regimes, but not really the case. And you know, for Malaysia, Malaysia's become, uh, uh, from what I can tell, Malaysia's uh, quite concerned because a lot of Chinese survey vessels have been uh, getting very close to their waters. Uh, likewise for Indonesia, so Philippines seems to be sort of you know cozying up to the Chinese a lot more and, and ceding to, uh, ceding territory to them in in the, uh, in the South China Sea. Other nations are not so friendly. They're actually quite concerned with uh, what's been going on there.
0: It's a good point you make. Uh, Vietnam's actually quite an interesting case because um, they have a lot of historic, despite the the prima facie sort of communist link. There's um, they've got historical tensions with china going back centuries um but on the issue of the south china sea they china exerts its influence not so much military as you say coast guard um but they also have their their sort of fisherman militias um who are very active day in day out in um observation of of um other the other nations fishing ships um and getting getting involved with that you know they they often are the the people reporting back to the coast guard on it could be u.s ship movements but also just just fishing um fishing ships from other other nations Vietnam have to an extent emulated that, not on a on such a scale, but, but Vietnam also is quite active in using its its coast guard and its sort of militias um, as an attempt to to sort of actively push back against China. Um, and of course, one we didn't mention is Indonesia, um, which is another big big regional sort of player. Um, and there've been quite a number of, like with Vietnam, um, Chinese coast guards ramming and sinking. Uh, fishing ships there so while individually a lot of these countries aren't really aren't really geared up to push back against someone as big and organized as China there's China's pushing on quite a few fronts against against uh, resistance
2: yeah and actually it's a uh, very interesting point you made so that uh just so sort of at the end there about uh, a lot of nations not sort of being kind of uh, sort of unprepared to sort of yeah. match the match the aggression which uh It's it's certainly becoming a scenario, I reckon, where a lot of nations in that region uh, certainly need to, uh, you know, I suppose, uh, for lack of a better term, get their get their affairs in order, because with a you know the major consideration with uh, major concern with the South China Seas. The fact that the Chinese have actually been, you know, establishing bases on uh, reefs and islands in the re- in the region. I mean, the Paracel Islands, that's right on Vietnam's doorstep. That's pretty much, from what I can tell, become a very uh, well established uh, military base. In fact, with uh, a lot of a lot of incidents we've been plotting uh, in the South China Sea. Uh, almost on a weekly basis, we're coming across incidents of uh, Chinese fighter, uh, Chinese bombers landing on the Paracel Islands, Chinese fighters landing in the Paracel Islands. Uh, also, activity in the in, in the in the Sprat uh, near the Spratly Islands. It's you know quite concerning that. Uh, and of course, alongside all those aircraft, uh, a whole lot of ships as well. So. The, I mean, the, the Coast Guard vessels, yep, they've been causing a lot of, they've been causing a lot of concern for, uh, for fishermen, uh, you know, coming from Vietnam, Indonesia, and Malaysia. Uh, while that's occurring, there's a whole lot of military activity. Uh, essentially, the Chinese are, have turned, and within the last couple, last about five years, the Chinese, uh, Chinese military have turned those islands into uh, well, uh, well-functioning bases, which essentially provide a very good buffer. Uh, for you know, for, for early warning and, like you said, defence in depth.
0: I mean, China's not the only uh, country that did that. Um, Vietnam has, and certainly Vietnam has laid claim to certain islands. They have military, you know, the Philippines, although they've given up a lot, as you say, they've given up territory. Philippines, a number of other nations have also tried to, you know, build outposts and, and do a certain amount of land reclamation, but none of them have got the capacity to do it on anything like the scale that china's been doing
2: although yeah not on the same scale but the efforts certainly although i think taiwan's an, uh, an exception to that in fact uh it was i think it was it wasn't myself and one of the other regional analysts we came across uh incident last week of the of taiwan sending about uh it was about a company of of, of marines to uh to i can't remember the, the name of the islands. Island, was it yes that's no. the one so they've sent about a company of marines to that island because they were quite concerned about a major exercise that the Chinese have been doing uh, been doing nearby and in fact with regards to the uh, the the military activity probably the the you know I, I think it possibly you know, could become a bit more uh, a bit more uh, significant as as we sort of ex- look uh, look elsewhere with regards to Chinese influence is uh, when you look at what they've been up to around the world. Uh, I think the major concern about the South China Sea is that what the Chinese have been up to in the South China Sea is essentially a, a manifestation of everything else they've been up to uh, uh, elsewhere. I mean, with you know, take for example with uh, the all the aircraft and the ships that have been that they've been sending out. Uh, really good example actually is uh, about 2008 2009 there were i distinctly remember reading an article in a paper about how uh, lockheed martin a uh, major u.s uh, defense contractor uh, their their uh, their uh, system computer systems were, were hacked and terabytes of data were stolen uh, on the f-35 program and possibly on the f-22 raptor as well now both those aircraft are essentially they're stealth, uh, stealth fighters and they're multi-role aircraft so they can you know conduct air to air air to air attack air to ground support uh, you know uh, electronic warfare intelligence gathering they're both platforms are very very impressive pieces of, air, uh, of aircraft and after that incident there was actually about five years down the track where the Chinese actually unveiled their uh, their, uh, their uh, fifth-generation uh, multi-role uh, air superiority fighter called the J-20. And when they unveiled it, it was uh, quite a concerning coincidence that the J-20 looks very, very similar to an F-22 and an F-35.
0: Yeah, I think just
1: looking at a few images of it, it's pretty clear resemblances, isn't there? So, oh, so, yeah. <laughs> certainly. So I think um, in the interest of time, we'll sort of move on from South China Sea. But I think one thing we can summarize from it is the country USA and China are obviously very much engaged in confrontation but I think the regional countries such as Vietnam and Indonesia which we've mentioned and the Philippines they've they've been forced to be much more pragmatic and they've tried to sort of uh, almost tread the line between the two and balance the two against each other at times or perhaps bandwagon or oppose at other times well I think there's possibly
2: a risk in doing that if they try and sort of play sort of you know be, be too diplomatic in that regard I mean one of the things for certain the uh, you know the China's actions in the South China Sea have actually been you know quite concerning if they you know at the same time if they're going to uh, you know take a you know engage in a lot of de- diplomacy and try and sort of you know keep, thi- uh, keep things civil that could actually distract them from building up a lot of hard power assets to make sure they're covered just in case diplomacy fails I mean you know I, I think If there's one lesson to be learned from the South China Sea is the uh, good old, um, good old concept that's been in place since 1648, the Treaty of Westphalia. Uh, You know, you've got to make sure, you know, as a state, you've got to make sure that you can guarantee your own interests, be it through soft power and certainly through hard power. So, I think uh, what's been happening could be quite a bit of a wake-up call for a lot of nations there to, you know, not just uh, try and stay friendly, but in case things do go bad, they can. Uh, they can take a hard-line approach.
1: So from a more economic perspective, then moving away from this uh, more military approach, we've seen, um, I think, that it's impossible to talk about Chinese influence without talking about the Belt and Road Initiative. This is a, a major infrastructure, a series of infrastructure projects across the world, which China intends to link itself with other markets, such as the EU, as well as, as, well as others. And this project has seen China gaining influence in multiple countries through investment and other projects. So... Alex, I know this is something you know quite a bit about. I was wondering if there's anything you can yeah. tell us about this. Well, first off, I mean, you,
0: you have to understand that the Belt and Road Initiative is a truly vast project. Um, projections um, on the how much China are actually spending on it um, see it at over a trillion dollars um, by, I believe, 2027. Um, I think Morgan Stanley have it like one point to $1.3 trillion. So in terms of scale, there's really nothing else that you can even compare it to. Um, And you're right, uh, it serves a number of functions. Um, It it serves as um, an outlet for for Chinese investment, um, for raw materials, for their manufacturing, for for labor. Um, But it also, and and like you say, it opens up markets to link China, China, Uh, to European markets, to energy sources in Central Asia Mm. that can't be um, disrupted by US military? Would that be the case, unlike in the South China Sea? Um, And yeah, and it's also... from an influence perspective, all of this money, um, all of this needed investment, especially in, in developing countries, Southeast Asia and Southeast Central Asia, especially, um, really is like a vehicle for for Chinese economic influence, um, especially in cases of, of the poorer developing nations that really badly need infrastructure. Um, it's a way of bringing them very much into the Chinese orbit. It has been criticised as debt, what's known as debt-trap diplomacy, um, which is a fair point. There are some nations where 20% of their GDP is, is now debt to China. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you get some big uh, projects like CPAC. Um, the Chinese-Pakistan Economic Corridor is probably the biggest Belt and Road initiative going. Um, but along with all this, there comes local resentment and pushback, um, both political and
1: from, from
0: um, populations.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point, actually. So we hear a lot about the successes of Belt and Road, but I do think here's, now's a good time to talk about um, where there has been pushback. And yeah. in Pakistan, actually, with the CPEC corridor, which you mentioned earlier, yeah. um, that's where one of the few cases where there's actually been armed uh, pushback to the to Chinese yeah. influence. And this has mostly come through the form of um, Balochistan's uh, various militant groups. But the, the biggest and most active of these is the Balochistan Liberation Army. And this group has carried out attacks against Chinese assets in the past and actually quite recently yeah. at the Karachi Stock Exchange. And they they targeted the Karachi Stock Exchange following a deal which saw a Chinese consortium purchase quite a large share in, in the stock exchange itself, and that's why they targeted it. And that featured yeah. in the BLA's um, uh, discourse following the attack in their on their official channels. And they've also targeted uh, workers from these Chinese projects working in B- the Balochistan region itself. So this is a case of where there's been there has been violent opposition to this. Uh, and they're very aware of the fact that the that the Chinese-funded projects also mean Chinese influence within Balochistan. And less violent, we've seen Central Asia, which is an example you brought up earlier. Central Asia is... Um, Seen a few social protests among uh, among the populace of the area who have generally disliked the way that a lot of these investment projects have actually brought very little social development, which they, they've been advertised as bringing to the host regions. So the reasons for this are varied. So in Central Asia, there's chronic corruption at the governmental level, and this has really reduced the amount of uh, development that we're seeing, and also. A lot of the workers on these projects are actually taken from China, so not not necessarily all of them. There's a, they do still recruit locally as well, but uh, many cases, the majority of the workers have been foreign workers, or at least not from the region itself. They've been taken from elsewhere, and this is, as you would expect, caused uh, quite significant resentment as as communities see essentially their jobs being taken away and uh, people who who aren't even from the area taking jobs that they expected they would take themselves. But again, I think it is important here to talk about how much of a of a hindrance is this you know we've talked about uh pushback among social populations but then in places like central asia these most of these countries are limited democracies at best or in the case of turkmenistan outright uh dictatorships so we're pro- in countries where protest is very limited which is admittedly the majority of the countries where Belt and road is going through at the moment yeah. um social protest is, is so heavily suppressed there's, a, there's an element of how? What potential does it have to actually impact uh, the Belt and Road Initiative? And at the current, currently, I think it's actually quite limited, with the protests being quite small and often quite infrequent. And yes, they have flared up in places like Kazakhstan in the past, but generally they've been small, and the government's been able to largely push them aside, or at least just give them very little media coverage. No, I'd agree with that. I think um probably more, th- more, f- a greater threat to
0: many of the Belt and Road projects would probably be them being cancelled. um as examples emerge where a project has been used, as, has got a government into trouble fiscally, mm. um, as has happened in in Sri Lanka, yeah, yeah. Um, for example, I think participants in the Belt and Road are a lot more reticent now than they perhaps were to uh, to sign up. Because you've got to remember, the, these aren't even like aid loans. Uh, mm. These are low in... Sorry, these aren't aid gifts this isn't free money that china is giving away it's just low interest loans um they do have to be paid back and a lot of projects that um maybe when at the beginning people were signing up for they're they're now viewed as not as financially viable and china's reined in its its spending a little and being more selective um on the political level there's there's been cancellations when when prime minister marty of um Malaysia was elected in 2018, he cancelled about $22 billions worth of Belt and Road Initiative mm. loans because he just didn't see it as uh, as being a viable thing for his
1: country. And I think we could see more of that. Um, I, think, um, I, I think it's certainly a good point, actually. I think people are now starting to realise that this is a potential threat. Yeah. And whilst, again, back to CPEC, whilst Pakistan is a very close ally of China and sees China as a great counterweight against their neighbour India... CPEC present, presents a problem for uh, for Pakistan in that the the attacks on Chinese assets have raised questions. And whilst I think it's unlikely for the time being, it has raised raised questions as to whether China is going to have to come more involved in the security of these yeah. projects. Because at the moment they've taken a very they very much taken approach of we'll just leave you to it. We'll give you the investment as long as you pay us back. We'll let you, yeah. we'll leave you to it and we won't question your practices. Whereas in Pakistan there have been cases where they've they've requested the Pakistani government to rep- uh, provide better security. Mm. And I, I imagine China would be very reluctant to deploy any form of security forces personnel to the Balochistan region. I think they, they must be aware that this would only make it worse. But mm-hmm. if attacks were to increase and continue or protests in other regions are to intensify, then yes, I think that we're going to start seeing a security threat. And I think that will then finally start actually having quite a, a very negative impact on these on these initiatives at the same time as governments are already starting to question, hold on, is this actually, is this a good idea? Is this is the this best uh, best solution for me? So I think um, I think China is also. Whilst it's a, I do think the initiative is so far largely successful. I do think China is at the moment starting to realise. Okay, there is there is issues with this. Yeah, it's interesting. Project. Yeah, it,
0: I kind of wonder what sort of scenario you could um, envision where China gets sucked into. Um, mm sort of foreign adventurism um which which traditionally it doesn't get involved in it, it i mean but as as we've said it, it's particularly its naval forces build up it gets that expeditionary capability it has these inter- large interests um in in foreign countries yeah you're right i, I could see some um as it's so-called wolf warrior um yeah. <laughs> sort of uh situations arising in in the medium to long term it, it would yeah. it'd certainly it'd certainly
2: be a, a very difficult a very difficult trap to avoid i mean just to you know what you're mentioning about the, the sort of what you guys mentioned about the sort of the scale of the belt and road initiative yeah. uh you know i can certainly back you guys up on that one i mean when uh back to when i was um you know my apologies are Possibly a bit of ancient history here, but hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, when I, uh, I, was, I was in the Australian Army, I deployed hmm. to East Timor uh, for six months back in 2012, and there was a few occasions around to uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, after that as well and in both countries uh no word of a lie you could throw a rock in any direction and you you would hit at least five uh infrastructure projects or any kind of construction project that was being heavily backed by the chinese government in in a lot of cases the the construction signs all the safety signs were all in you know all all in chinese Hmm. so you know that's of course a very you know that would mean of course there's quite a sizable workforce in just those two small places uh, small countries alone and of course that does you know in in Papua New Guinea there's of course you know uh, there can be a lot of tension amongst locals and and foreigners when it comes to uh, when it comes to infrastructure projects particularly uh, particularly mining and uh, consequently, uh, I think it's going to be sort of a you know a bit of a, a very a very difficult trap to avoid because with all those Belt and Road initiative projects going on, cancelled or not, there's still quite a considerable amount yeah. going on. That's a, a lot of you know a lot of workers coming from mainland China and going into uh, going into those areas. And in fact, there's even been uh, cases of that in, uh, in 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 Australia with uh, with uh, with infrastructure projects, and that's caused uh, quite a bit quite a bit of concern. So. Uh, as uh, you know sort of tension increases and say areas such as you know say uh, east timor papua new guinea or uh much more you know uh, sort of you know still developing countries as the tension increases they'll probably have to at some point send you know security forces in and that's going to you know that will, it'll have to be a sizable commitment because there's just so many projects going on but as they do that that's going to probably you know in you know Unintentionally, uh, unintentionally make matters worse because there's going to be, you know, of course, with a lot of security forces, that's going to you know, increase yeah. even more tension. You may even see, yeah. uh, you know, very, very worst case scenario in sort of like a kind of insur- insurgency movements uh, that emerge. But I'd, I'd say that's a very, very extreme and very unlikely scenario at the moment, but you know, a possibility to consider.
1: I guess that's one of the strengths of the Belt and Road being so extensive as well as if there was to be tension I I assume the Chinese government is very reluctant to become involved so if there was to be uh, overwhelming tensions in a country that is taking place so it's such a global uh, outreach that they can just ditch projects in one area and just rely on projects from another country and et cetera Yeah of
0: course we've reached a stage now where um, the Belt and Road initiative has actually paying significant dividends on a diplomatic level for China. Um, the, with the perfect example was the recent um, vote in the UN on the uh, Hong Kong security law that was brought in, um, which saw 53 countries uh, vote in support of China, mm. as and uh, I believe about 27 opposed. Of those 53, um, very few of them will be rated as... Free or democratic countries, um, and uh, the vast majority of them were recipients of Belt and Road Initiative funding and projects. Um, many of the African nations that voted with China were actually in the process of of trying to restructure their Belt and Road Initiative debt that they've got to China. Um, so it really shows how that economic um, that economic clout can be can be wielded at a very high diplomatic level
1: absolutely so i think that's uh, that's all we've got finishing on that note today so uh thanks both matt and alex for today i think that was that was really good actually it's been pretty uh, pretty comprehensive uh, if you liked what you saw then please feel free to like us on social media and by all means follow us on the youtube channel as well and we will see you next fortnight